Happy Friday, everybody, and welcome to the Internet's favorite show about plastic surgery, health, and beauty. We got a great show for you today. First off, I got one of the craziest medical videos that I've ever taken. I can't wait to show it to you. Next, women in medical misdiagnosis. And lastly, should you get a facelift in your 40s? We're going to talk about it, and it's coming up right now. Live from Lincoln Center in the heart of the Dallas Metroplex, this is Nip Talk an honest and uncensored show about plastic surgery, health, beauty, and lifestyle with your host, plastic surgeon, Dr. Bruce Herman, and your co-host, entrepreneur and social media influencer, Sarah Bennett. Now it's time to discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of the topics everyone is talking about. It's time for Nip Talk. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. Please hit that like and subscribe button and leave us a comment. We want to hear from you. I'm your host, plastic surgeon, Dr. Bruce Herman. With me, as always, is the great Sarah Bennett. Hi. And in the box, Trelvis. What's up, man? How you been? I'm good. I'm good. How about y'all? Doing good, man. It's Friday. Yeah, it is. It always seems to be Friday when we do the show. It's one of the best things about, about <laughs> doing the show. It always seems to be. Yeah, it's right? Friday. It's consistency. It uh, is. Yeah, I like that. Very consistent. Yeah, so it's, it's been, been a good week for y'all. Anything exciting? New? Nothing new? Uh, not really. I, yeah, no, not really. Makeup mm -mm. aesthetic. Everything been pretty, pretty, pretty consistent as well. I don't have anything. It's kind of slow this summer. It's funny. Uh, even in the hospitals are a little bit slow. I guess people are staying healthy and people don't want surgery. I guess they're all on vacation or whatnot. So I actually had the morning off, which is really unusual. I usually I'm always operating on Friday mornings, but yeah, yeah I slept I in. And one interesting thing I did, um, yeah. I, I went to an immersive video game spot. Uh, okay, tell me all about that. Game? I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm like, a, I'm a closet like super gamer here. So. Really? Okay. Yeah. I knew that already. Oh, you knew that? Okay, tell me, what was it? Charles? So you might like it. It's called Sandbox VR. Um, oh, I think I've heard of it. Have you heard of it? Okay. Basically, they put these goggles on you and then yeah. they, they put these sensors on your wrist yeah. and your ankles. Um, and then they take you into this room and they put headphones on you as well. And then you basically are simulating like fighting zombies or you can play, I think like, a, what is the game? They just turned it into a movie. This um, is us? No, no, no. It's like, oh. it's, it's the guy with the ax and it's another one with like a bow and arrow. Um, oh, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, you can you yeah. can simulate Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, uh, I just well, saw that. So yeah, <laughs> that was it. So we simulated the zombie fighting one. It was really cool. That's pretty cool. So mm -hmm. I have to uh, admit, I actually have a VR setup at home. Like I'm oh, kind no. of a computer nerd, and like yeah. I like to build computers. And so a couple years ago, I built a VR setup, and it is pretty amazing. Like the technology is is really making some big strides. So mm -hmm. I have like a second generation kind of VR headset, which is a huge improvement over the first. And, really? it, and it's really good. I have to say there's a couple things that I've done in there where I've been in the VR. And then when I take it off, it's really disorienting because like your brain thinks that you're in this location. And then when you suddenly like to materialize in a different place, it kind of messes with your head a little bit. Like yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm sure that's just another addictive way of video games, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. Just another way well, to get you really addicted. So I, I kind of feel that in the future, VR is gonna play a really big part in our lives because for example, you know, you could attend school through VR if you wanted to. And so for, you know, people who may not have as good of resources around them, they could do VR and basically get into like a classroom that's virtual and, and have like a really good learning experience. And you could extrapolate that into college or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
And so um, it's funny. I read a book. I, do you guys remember that the movie called Ready Player One? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. So I, I actually read this. That's actually from a book which came out in 2011. And, and in the book, which is always really different than the movie, it goes into a lot of how VR got intertwined in society and all the changes that made. It's actually very, very interesting. So, and I firmly believe that that book's kind of ahead of its time. Like, I think that is what the future is going to be like. Yeah. Not like the movie. The movie was obviously for, for you know, strictly entertainment. But yeah, you know the movie the that um, that they remade with The Rock, and it was about video uh, the, not a video game, but. I forget what it's called, Jumanji. Oh, it's right. about a board yeah. game. It was you know? Robin yeah. Robin Williams the first time. And then... Yeah, but like at the end of the movie, I remember Ro the Rock's character was like, because he was this like dweeby boy uh -huh. in high school, but uh -huh. he was this big, massive, heroic guy in this it, video game. And I'm like, uh -huh. I could see VR having oh, totally. yeah, that could, aspect well, where kids are like, I'd rather just live here because I'm whoever yeah. I want to be here. And, and that's like some that's of the scary. things that the book talks about that in the virtual world, you can, you know, change your appearance and who you are and how you present yourself. And so there's definitely some, um, there's definitely some interest in that. So yeah, that's really cool. Travis. I haven't done that. I, I have played around a lot with the VR at my home mm -hmm. and, um, I'm waiting for, I think the next generation is when it's really going to kind of take off yeah, right now. Sure. You just. You need like a really powerful computer and this equipment, but just like everything, you know, like computers were, it'll get easier for the average person to start consuming it. And then yeah. they'll take, I mean, remember when iPhones came out and everyone's like, I don't need <laughs> right. an iPhone. What do I need this thing for? And then suddenly a few people started using it. And yeah, I think it's going to be big in the future. Yeah, it's so. it's it was really oh, cool definitely. Though. It was dope. Yeah. So uh, I, I didn't want to make this a segment. I do, I do want to do an update. Do you remember when we did this, this segment last week about the plastic surgeon that was on trial for the murder. Uh, well, or for the, the death not of calling nine one one. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, that that verdict came out this past week. They they convicted him, and so uh, for those who who didn't see last week's segment, there was a plastic surgeon, Dr. Jeffrey Kim, out in Colorado, and he had an eighteen year old patient in his office that went into cardiac arrest. He resuscitated her, which is great, but then apparently, according to the court, uh, he refused to call nine one one for five hours, and she ended up dying, and so. We were talking about that last week, and uh, the trial ended this week. Apparently, it was really quick. They, so they, they, they didn't convict him on negligent homicide. It ended up being some form of manslaughter. Um, but he's, like, facing three years in prison. Like, it's, it's for real. That's a, it must wow. have been, like, overwhelming evidence for them to come up with the verdict so quick, too. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, he I would probably assume... had his whole staff was like, yeah, he yeah, told us everybody so. not to call 911. Yeah, right. I mean, I, 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 and, you know, I wasn't there. This is all from what I read. But it sounds like that it was pretty slam dunk that this definitely was some, um, like, a crime committed there. So Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, it's, um, it's really sad. And so I... Once again, as always, we don't talk about these things yeah. to sensationalize them. It's all about, you know, is there anything you can learn to prevent that from happening? And, right. You know, I think one of the things, too, for medical people, um, and uh, this is really big in the places I work, you see these signs that say, if, if you see something that you think is unsafe, say something. Yeah. Say something. And I really do believe in that, um, honestly, uh, because... You know, uh, I don't think everyone's like this, but there are times when people in power can abuse that. I and, mean, when anybody's in any sort of power, it usually always gets abused. I don't know if I'm that pessimistic, but, but, but I, I, hear, I hear what you're saying, yeah. I feel like sometimes it just, it's like inevitable. It goes to people's heads. The best people to lead are the people who don't want to lead, right? Yeah. That they have to. But they have to. Yeah. That's a good call. So 
Anyway, um, I feel like it's that. I mean, I feel like that story is just good information, anyways, for sure. like medical workers that are like yes. they're looking for jobs. Right. Like maybe don't work for somebody that has an office. Like not that it's well, like super I, I bad, to say that but like there there are tons of great plastic surgeons and other doctors who yeah. have office ORs, but it does take away one potential layer of protection of yeah. patient protection in that in that OR that particular doctor has an oversight versus in a facility they they do have oversight yeah so I mean it's just something to keep in the back of your mind mm -hmm. I've thought many times about the, my own OR and and, and quite frankly uh, the biggest reason I haven't done it is that it, it just seems like a huge headache to have like another thing that you have to manage mm -hmm. um, I mean there's some other reasons I haven't done it too but um, but I don't know, I like doing a surgery center, and when I talk to my patients, I'm always like, oh yeah, I do my surgeries at an accredited surgery center. Like, this place is totally legit, it's, you know, regulated and all that, you know, to a very high level, and I don't know. Safety. For safety. everybody. Safety. Yeah, right, we want to be safe, so. Yeah. All right, so, guys, I have something for you guys that, that I want you to, to see, okay? Now, have you guys ever seen the movie Alien or Aliens? Yes. Mm -hmm. Where the creature bursts out of somebody's stomach? Yes. Absolutely. Roll the clip. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, gosh. You should see Sarah's face right now. <laughs> Is this on somebody's stomach? Yeah, yeah, it's somebody's stomach. Is that a stomach? I thought it was a shoulder. No, it's a stomach. That is a stomach. That is wild. And there, is there something inside them? I don't know. Check it out. Look, look, there it goes. I hate it. <laughs> All right, guys. What do you think you're looking at there? Any guesses? Is it is it like pus? Like moving pus? Yeah. Nope. Is it a worm? Nope. So what you're looking at, that's actually the intestines moving. So this patient uh, had a I was abdominal gonna say surgery. That. <laughs> oh, you should have. I, I saw it in your eyes. I thought you were about to say it. I was um, <laughs> so this patient had a surgery where they went through the middle of his abdomen <laughs> to. Are you okay, Trevor? You're not gonna pass out in there, are you? I don't know. <laughs> so this patient had a surgery where they opened up his abdomen, and he had complications after the surgery, and he has what's called a fascial dehiscence and loss of domain. So what that means is that the layer that separates his insides, like his intestines and his organs, split. Okay. And then his intestines kind of went out into that space. And because of where he was in, in his like overall medical health at the time and the fact that it would have been really difficult, they, they opted not to try to go back and, and put his intestines back in, which is, happens because when, when this occurs in somebody and they get sick, it's extremely dangerous to try to go back and then put the intestines back. Yeah. A lot of times you can't do it and then you can get like holes in your intestines and then people really can you know, end up dying. So one of the solutions for that is you, you basically do wound care on top of the intestines. You get a little layer of tissue to grow on the intestines and then you put a skin graft on top of it. Okay. Then that way he has a covered wound. He can go on living his life. Of course, he'd wear a binder over his abdomen, but he can go on living his life until everything on the inside calms down. And then the surgeon can go back and, and fix it where it's safe. And so okay. that's exactly what happened. So he came to me and he had this big open wound and literally his intestines were sitting right there. And so we started wound care. We got a layer of tissue growing on there. Then once the t layer of tissue was healthy enough, I put a skin graft on it. But that layer over the intestines is, is only skin thick. And so when he eats and his intestines move, you can see it right through the skin. Hmm. 
Pretty crazy, right? Doesn't it look like the aliens? Like something's about to jump out? It does. Yeah. It was like he's pregnant. Does yeah. your intestine normally move? Like yeah. Move? Yes, totally. totally. Yeah, absolutely. So like when you when you open someone up uh, for surgery, you can see the intestines move. It's almost like snakes in a, oh, in, really? a in a basket like moving around. Now, a lot of times the patients haven't haven't eaten because we require people not to eat before surgery, so they're not like super active. Right. But then if somebody has like a trauma or it's an emergency, you know, their bowels might be moving when you open them up but yeah they kind of like it's called peristalsis where it's basically where the bowels are, are you know squeezing to move food you know yeah. down the line so wow. i don't know i thought you guys would like that i saw that and i was like dude you would you mind if i take a video and use it and he's like no dude go ahead he's he's a super great patient i i if he sees it, i want to thank him so much for uh let me use that is that painful the which part like like not having your intestines secured no um i i feel i, I think most people would say that you they feel like a weird pressure you know mm. because it, it's really changing how the intra-abdominal pressure is to have this big opening that kind of allows things out so Jeez. i think people would say that it's an unusual feeling but i don't he not pain him and other patients i've treated don't describe it as painful wow mm. that's interesting pretty wild stuff i've never seen anything like that before yeah ever. that's a pretty crazy video isn't it yes so. indeed all right, uh, so uh, that's really all I got about that one. So let's uh, move on. So this is a really important topic, and I'm, I can't wait to hear uh, Sarah's opinion on this one. Uh, so oh. this is uh, women and medical misdiagnosis. Okay. And so um, I know Sarah, uh, just kind of jumping ahead, that... Her eyes look crazy, by yeah, the way. Is this an AI image? Dude, you guys are so good. Yes, it is. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. She looks like she needs to be on, like... Freaking... She looks like she's about to, like, turn she looks into, like, she's like the a zombie mutant. apocalypse or something. She's, like, the first one to turn. She's like, she's, like, I'm from Storm from X-Men or something. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm like, Dude, she's about to make a storm. Not to, like, derail my entire segment, but I went through a lot of, like, pictures with AI because I was like, you know, I don't want to, like... Yeah, yeah, I just was like, I, easy, I'll get AI to create a picture. But then it created a bunch of pictures I wasn't happy with, and I was trying to get it to do the right angle. And oh, that one's pretty good. But yeah, she does have the, the storm eyes. And I was, I was totally wondering if you guys were going to see that. So nice. good job, like, both you guys. Good job. She good doesn't job. look right. She got a wrong diagnosis. So. Uh -oh. Okay, uh, back on track. So uh, medical misdiagnosis occurs when someone gets either an incorrect diagnosis, a delayed diagnosis, or just a failure to make a diagnosis at all. And I remember you and I uh, in the past have talked about that, that you had an incorrect diagnosis. Yeah. And so um, I, I want to circle back to that uh, if, you're, if you're willing to talk about yeah, it. No, yeah, no. So uh, the first kind of question about. is, well, Travis, have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever, had, have you ever gone to the doctor and they missed a diagnosis? Mm, I, I'm sure I have, but no, nothing like really like major. Nothing major? Yeah, nothing major. I nothing can't say major. that I have either. Um, I have to admit I'm not great about going to the doctor, uh, but the few times that I've gone were for very specific things like, I broke my neck or whatever, right. you know? And so it was really not like a big, I was like- I hope I, you went to the doctor. I was like, I was in a hockey collision and I, my, can hear my bones cracking when my neck turns, can you take a look at it? So anyway, they got that one right, but um, I haven't had it happen to me. I, I have had it happen to my family though. Yeah. Uh, and so anyway, so how often does this happen? Well, if you look at the research on it, if you look at all ER visits, it's around 6% that people that get a misdiagnosis, which that's not insignificant. Yeah. Um, if it's an office visit, it's less, it's around one to 2%. So, I mean, the overwhelming majority of doctors are getting it correct, but when you extrapolate that small percentage into the number of visits that occur in the United States every year, you're talking about 10 or 20 million you know, wrong diagnoses that happen every year. Mm -hmm. and, and that's to both men, men and women. 
And so like, what is the outcome of that? Well, they do estimate that about 100 to 250,000 people die every year because of a wrong diagnosis. It's pretty wild when you think about that. That's a staggering number of people that potentially die because something is either missed or in yeah. incorrectly diagnosed. Um, and of course, you know, that's just an estimate. It's hard to exactly pinpoint those numbers. They have to extrapolate that from, from, from data that's not specific to it. There's estimated to be between 300 and 400,000 people who don't die but, but receive some sort of harm that yeah. requires further medical attention. So when it comes to women, you know, it's kind of understood in medicine that it is a higher risk for women to be misdiagnosed than men. And so I tried to find a good study that gave a... A reason for that? Well, no, I, I, we're going to go over that. Oh, okay. There's actually some pretty well-known reasons that they're, they're kind of interesting. It's things you don't think about. But as far as like, so what is your increased risk of a diagnosis being wrong versus me or Travis? And, and there's no real great study that says exactly what that is, but there's a couple things that try to estimate it. And they say it's like a 20% increased risk. So for example, if, you know, I had to go to 100 doctors to get a wrong diagnosis, you would only have to go to 80. It's a 20% increased risk. So it's not a huge amount, but it's definitely higher for women. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there is some pretty interesting uh, data about how men versus women feel about their interaction with doctors. So if you ask uh, men and women, um, have you ever had a doctor ignore or dismiss your symptoms? 20% of women say they have, and only about 14% of men say they have. And if you ask them specifically, do you think that you were treated differently because of your gender? Women will say 17% yes, that's happened, and men only 6%. Yeah. So there definitely is a perception of this happening with patients without question, uh, and the data does back that up. So, you know, going back to what you said of like, what, what causes this? Yeah. You know, what causes women to get more wrong diagnoses yeah. than men? So there's really very few people that believe that this is intentional, meaning, you know, I think we're kind of past the days where men are out to purposely harm women. I mean, I think that... that That'd be strange. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, I think we could all agree that that is probably not an intentional thing where doctors are just, you know, maliciously ignoring women out of spite. Mm -hmm. So, okay, well, if, if we agree about that, then, then what causes it? Well, there are a few things uh, that are, they're basically holdovers of gender bias from the past. And so what I mean by that is, for example, in the past, when they would do research studies, they, they, they only included men. Well, okay, that's not necessarily a good thing because diseases and symptoms don't always present the same in mm -hmm. men and women. And so a lot of the early research that happened in the 1900s was on only men. And so the classic example of that is when they did the study on Ambien, you know, that sleep drug. Mm -hmm. So the study included only men. And so through the study, they determined a dose. Well, come to find out, men metabolize Ambien much quicker than women. Yeah. So when they, extra when they extrapolated that dose for men to women, it was like way, way too much. Right. And so it's kind of one of the classic examples of how the, the studies... Um, uh, in the past, we only had men ended up giving some kind of negative bias towards women. Right. Um, there's also uh, the um, attribution of doctors sometimes of women's real symptoms to things like hormones. They say, oh, you're anxious, or this is your hormones, and or this is, you know, the classic one in the past was, you know, the diagnosis of hysteria, right? And so, I, I right. mean, I don't think that that happens too much. I mean, I, I hope I, not. I mean, my doctor that misdiagnosed me was a female, so... 
Oh, was she? I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Um, so do, I guess in that case, you probably don't feel like your misdiagnosis really was gender specific. It was just a misdiagnosis. No. I mean, I don't think so. Maybe she thought I was, maybe it was age. Could be. Like I was more young. of an ageist thing. Yeah. And I went in there very strongly saying, like, I think there's something seriously wrong with me. Really? We're definitely going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> so I agree with you that I don't think in this day and age we see a lot of doctors just flat out saying, oh, your symptoms are just, you know, anxiety or yeah. hormones. I mean, I'm sure it happens, but I don't think that's like a huge amount. Um, there is this kind of belief in, and this is more kind of old school than new school, that that symptoms present equally in men and women. Mm -hmm. and, and and that's just totally not true for many, many different things. Well, hormones don't present equally, so. Of course, I mean, <laughs> well, I, you know. Nothing's really I, When equal. I was going through medical school and doing things like pathology or when I was going through my clinical rotations, I mean, there were very specific times when either a textbook or a clinician would tell me, okay, for this disease in women, it will present differently, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and so I do remember very distinctly that there were certain things that were presented to me. I'm, I'm not sure that's always the case uh, in the past, you know? Uh, I, I feel like things have gotten better as time has gone on, of course. Yeah. Um, but some of that still does, uh, does persist. And then another thing that's really, and this one I, I totally believe, is the different styles of how men and women present symptoms. You know, yeah. when men go to the doctor, and this is just typically, when they, men go to the doctor, they're typically very short and succinct. My abdomen hurts uh, when I eat, you know, and so it's like short and to the point versus, and this is also not to stereotype, but women have more an elaborate, more narrative way to, to say things. And sometimes I feel, or not just me, I feel, but the research indicates that when that happens in a doctor's office where time is short, then perhaps the doctor doesn't allow them to fully, fully yeah. tell their tell what's going on. Yeah. So uh, I feel like guys just don't like you said they don't go to the doctor very much until right. they absolutely have to. Yeah, so and they're maybe, just like I want out of here. Maybe their <laughs> symptoms are just so like like yeah these this is your definite symptoms because they go you to let the it go doctor too long. to like at the very. It could be. I mean that's and like women might go to the doctor like I did when I was like. It was preemptive, like it was yeah. something, I mean, I should have gone to the doctor about, but it wasn't, you know, mm. I don't know. Girls, I, mean, are, I think, I feel like girls are, girls are more likely to just to, be like. To be go early on. Yeah, they're more like when it's preventative. They're right, like, when it might I be better go to the doctor. So it might be something that's harder to diagnose. Yeah. I mean, that, like it's an that's early, actually a great early point. Symptoms. That's a great point that, I mean, I didn't think about that when I was doing this and, and nor have I seen a lot of information about that, but that's actually a a pretty great point. Good job, Sarah. I'm going to give you a gold star for today. Um, also, the last thing is, is there's some diseases specific to women that are very difficult to diagnose. Mm -hmm. And so we'll talk about those. So, um, so yeah, and just moving on strictly to that. So it, what diseases are out there where it has been shown that women are more likely to get a misdiagnosis? And the number one would be heart disease. Okay. Um, it's pretty well established, and I remember, you know, hearing about that. I don't treat a ton of heart disease, being a surgeon, but I do have knowledge of it, and mm -hmm. I, I do remember learning that things like heart attack do present differently in women versus men. You know, the classic left arm pain, crushing chest tightness. That's that's more typical with, with men, whereas women may have more subtle symptoms. And so, it's not surprising that that there actually was a study that came out that says that. Women having an MI or heart attack are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed than men. Oh. And so, you know, I don't think for any form or fashion that that's, you know, some sort of malicious 
thing by the doctors, but I think it does boil down to the fact that women do present symptoms differently than men, mm -hmm. and people need to be aware of it. Like doctors need to be aware of it. Yeah. Patients need to be aware of it if they can, which is why we do the show. Um, <laughs> strokes, another one. Uh, there's yeah. a 30% increased risk that women would be misdiagnosed with a stroke, uh, which is something that's very important because with strokes, I mean, to in the same into the same degree, heart attacks, but especially with strokes, they always talk about there's a window. When you have a stroke, it needs to be treated within a certain time frame, or the complication or in long-term morbidity goes up, 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 up. So that's another one that's really important to kind of realize that that happens, that if a woman's having a stroke, like making a diagnosis is critically important. So autoimmune diseases, okay. uh, which are three times more prevalent in women than men, uh, take on average five years to diagnose. That's pretty crazy that someone would have a problem for that many years and not be able to make a diagnosis. And, yeah. and that does boil down to the fact that um, that those are harder to diagnose. Autoimmune right. diseases are classically some of the most hard things to diagnose because their symptoms are very vague and they come and go and there's not always like a very easy test to run. And so it's pretty easy to see how that, that might happen. And then lastly, some of the very specific female diseases, endometriosis, that's classic. You know, people, women will describe these, you know, cramping, which people, you know, say, that, oh, it's your period or whatever, uh, and it's due to endometriosis. And so, mm -hmm. you know, that can really get out of hand on people if it's not diagnosed because it tends to get worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And then things like polycystic ovarian disease are another one. Yeah. So, uh, so when you think about that as far as, okay, well, there's, there's certain diseases that are more common in women that are hard to diagnose, and then women present differently than men, it starts to become a little clear as to how this is happening. And then also the different styles of men and women when they're, when they're talking about their symptoms. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, lastly, it's okay. Well, how do you, how do you prevent this? Like, how do you, how do you make that even, you know, obviously we want to eliminate all misdiagnosis in all patients. Right. That would be the ultimate goal. But I do think that when you see that one gender has a much higher risk of it happening, that you have to ask yourself, why is that? And what can we do to at least even the playing field before we bring it down for right. everyone? And so I, I think, you know, for there, there's, there's things that physicians need to do and there's things that, that patients need to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, for physicians, I mean, I always say this, you know, this is a classic saying from general surgery. It says, when you're trying to make a diagnosis, when all else fails, talk to the patient. You know, listen to your patients. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's something that really bugged me when I was kind of going through my training when doctors would come in and out and not really listen to their patients because they truly are the best resource for figuring out what's going on. With right. You know, a lot of times people rely on studies, and I think that that's a mistake. You do have to listen to what your patients are saying. But moving on to patients, you know, okay, for example, when you went in there and, and you were saying, no, I think there's seriously something wrong with me, that's, that's right. You did the right thing, <laughs> truly, because, you know, sticking, uh, like being confident in that you feel like there's something wrong and that if you feel that the doctor is not addressing that, when patients are... are confident and say, no, there's something wrong. I know it. Doctors do take note. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had, I've had patients do that to me where, I mean, I don't diagnose a lot of stuff, but I've, I, but sometimes plastic surgery related things do pop up and uh -huh. I've had patients say, look, I really think there's an issue. And when patients say that I, I pause for a minute and I think, okay, am I missing something? Right. You know, if I think it's something different, am I missing something? Do I need to dig deeper? And so I think most doctors are like me, where if a patient voices their, uh, opinion that something's going on, that they're going to at least pause. Yeah. Um, doing your research is important. 
You know, um, I, I know a lot of doctors would say that they hate when their patients go to the internet. Um, yeah, that's what I did. There, there are downsides to it because there's a lot of bad information out there. But I will say I love it when a patient comes in for a consult and I know they've done the research and they ask questions that are intelligent. Um, I love it because, it, I, you know, a lot of times patients don't do that and it's just me talking to them and they're, they're not necessarily asking questions. And so I love that interaction. But to it, it shows me that the patient um, is taking an active role in their care. Yeah. And I think it's best when patients do that. I think those patients have better outcomes. And I do firmly believe that if a patient is more involved with their care, then they're less likely to, to have a misdiagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, sticking to the facts. You know, uh, that, that is important. I mean, it's sad to say, but uh, in this day and age, doctors don't have as much time with their patients as they used to. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you want to try to avoid some big, long narrative story about your symptoms. State your facts. This is what's happening. This is when it's happening. Um, it and then, started yeah, at this time. That way yeah. you, you at least have a better chance to get your whole story out there before either the doctor has to do something else or, I mean, they lose interest, I don't know, but mm -hmm. um, but it is important to kind of stay. I've, and I've always found that when you tell like the doctor like everything, like you don't leave out stuff. Yes. It's like, it almost like some, like a, Ding. Yeah. yeah, the doctor's well, like, oh, that's why. Well, there's a lot of times with- You like with, leave out stuff that you don't think would matter. Mm -hmm. True, because there's a lot of things with medicine where one little clue will kind of Mm -hmm. key you in to at least maybe have an idea of what's going on. Yeah. So like I mean, little subtle stuff that anything yeah. surrounding symptoms is important. Well, recently I like, I, I, I mowed my lawn like okay. a month ago and I'd never like done that before. And, and you've never mowed your lawn. Never in your life. My dad I mean, never left. You've me. never once in your life mowed a lawn. No. How was it? <laughs> it was hard. <laughs> it was hard. <laughs> was this like a push mower or was it a riding mower? Yeah, it was a push mower. Oh, and push I have mower. a, oh I have an acre of, property that has you mowed to be a whole mowed. acre of grass yes did you you, you had to take it you had to commemorate no this i had i took breaks but <laughs> the like I, I mowed my lawn for like two hours one day wow and i got done and my throat immediately started hurting and i was like this okay. feels like strep and so okay. i woke up the next day and my throat was hurting was like, it strep or was it allergy it was an allergy thing but yeah. i went to the doctor because i was like this feels like strep this is strep and so they swabbed my throat they're like it's not strep and they were like what and they're like doing? what are you like what's going on like why do you feel like oh, you i have mowed strep? five acres of grass and, yesterday <laughs> and because they were asking me like what happened like yeah. what i was doing and i was like oh i mowed my lawn and they're like oh you had an allergy like mm -hmm. attack or symptom and yeah. they're like so when you mow your lawn again you have you need to take like benadryl wear a mask and then take benadryl you're after. like screw that i'm just not mowing the lawn ever again <laughs> <laughs> no i bought it like uh, i have oh, you did I um, borrowed my neighbor's mower, but now I, I'm mowing my lawn myself. Wow. Yeah. I enjoy mowing the lawn. I, I, I do mine I didn't have own. a problem with it until it like, made me sick for some reason. We have almost an acre of grass, and so it takes time, but I have, what are those zero-turn riding mowers? Oh, see, I can't get one of those because my property is so... Uh, oh, hilly. Mm -hmm. It's like, there's some parts of it right, that are like way too... Can I give like, you a nickel's worth of free too. advice? What? Please never, never put your hand up under a lawnmower. Oh. Well, people do that. I, I see patients in the ER all the time that chop off their fingers from doing that. I mean, it sounds stupid, right? But yeah, don't do that. It's, I it, lawnmowers <laughs> are dangerous. They're spinning blades, yeah. So, anyway, oh, the <laughs> last thing I want to say, that. last thing I want to say about avoiding medical misdiagnosis, I tell my patients this too. Do not be afraid to get a second opinion, uh, especially right. if something's not straightforward. 
uh, or even change doctors. Yeah. You know? um, I have patients come in sometimes and they'll have a very difficult problem. It's like maybe mostly for like revision type surgeries where they had a surgery and it was, I don't want to say botched, but maybe not gone to plan. And they have something that's really difficult and I will give them a plan and they'll, they'll say something like, well, I heard that, you know, there's other options. And, and I'll say, look, it, this is a plan I would put forth, but please, by all means, if you're, if you're not comfortable with it, like get a second opinion, like get a few opinions about what should be done. Um, yeah. Cause I think it's good because sometimes one doctor might miss something that another doctor would pick up on. So. I mean, it's only your life. Yeah, right. It's only <laughs> Why wouldn't life. you get a second opinion? I don't know. I think, uh, well, sometimes uh, there People are issues are with it's, you know, time or, you know, yeah. getting insurance or whatnot. So, but anyway, medical misdiagnosis in women, it's, it's a thing. Uh, you know, remember those, those different diseases that that's more prone to happen in. And, uh, you know, if you feel like your doctor is not taking you seriously, say something, you know, be your own advocate. For serious. Cool. Right on. Okay. Uh, next, this is a pretty good, good topic, actually. And I have to give a shout out to Jackie Costick, who is with my social media company. She actually sent me this story. Thank you, Jackie. I do appreciate it. I know you're watching. Um, this is a, a good one. And it's whether or not you should have a facelift when you're in your 40s. And so this story actually comes from a news article that came out this past week about Kat Sadler. Okay. Um, do you know her? She looks familiar. Yeah, she does. I, I, I recognized her when I saw her. I'm not sure I could have come up with her name. She's uh, 48 years old. Okay. She's a TV host or former TV host, e-reporter, podcaster, entrepreneur. She's from E! News? Yeah, she was a reporter for E! News. Okay, yeah, that's where I remember her yeah. from. So this past week, she came out saying that she'd had a facelift, neck lift, and eye lift. So three procedures. Um, and the reason that this is a story is because, jumping ahead a little bit, these are typically procedures that are done on people older than 40. Mm -hmm. And we'll kind of dive into that. And so she was very open about it, which I think is super cool. Uh, you know, because I, I don't like when celebrities are, you know, going around having plastic surgery and say, oh, this is all natural when it's really not. Yeah. Um, so she had a really good quote and uh, pardon my French, but I'm going to quote her directly. Um, she said, of course, I thought, what are people going to think? Who is going to judge me? But I think one of the best parts about getting older is giving zero fucks about what people think. And I was like, that's really, really well said. I, I agree with that 100%. Um, so, uh, but the big question is, is I guess, what do I think about someone getting a facelift in their 40s? Um, so I guess the first question you'd have to ask is when do most people get facelifts? And so I actually tried to pull some data on that and it was kind of over the map as far as when do people normally get facelifts. Uh, but it, it does seem to be that early 60s is kind of the average. You know, okay. there's, there are definitely people getting facelifts in their 50s, not a ton. Uh, there's a lot of people in their 60s, some in their 70s. Uh, and so, you know, the question is, 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 is the forties too, too young? Well, as I, and I'm a pretty conservative surgeon, uh, I, I know we've talked about this in the past that I am absolutely not afraid to tell people no, if I mm -hmm. think they don't need surgery, I, I like right off the bat, my first inclination is to say that 48 is too young to have a facelift and neck lift and, and the eyelids are a little bit different. And I'm going to, I'm going to mention about that at, at the very end. Um, so, you know, Travis, can I, can you pull up that next picture? I think it's just a close-up of her face. Yeah. So is this before. Uh, yeah, this is the before, right? So mm -hmm. um, when you look at her, uh, I, I will say that you know, and this is probably just purely genetics, that it does seem that she does have a little bit more 
sag to her face than might be average for for someone that's 48. Yeah, Start, like maybe like right here. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit of jowling there. Um, even the mid face a little bit. And, and I'm gonna show another picture in a minute in our second of her eyes. And so, you know, the question that I have for somebody that maybe is young seeking a procedure that's normally done on patients who are older is, does this patient have a circumstance where they are aging more quickly than normal? Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that is a reason when, where I, I would probably cons I might consider doing it myself. And so when I look at her, I mean, she's a beautiful woman, but you know, I do think that her, her, the aging of her face is a little bit earlier than it, than it might you be. You could see why she wants to get it. I could facelift. see why she wants yeah. it. And so uh, I would tell you that, you know, if she had come into, to my office, um, I would have probably tried to convince her to do a non-surgical treatment. Uh, mm -hmm. Nowadays, there are amazing treatments for the face and neck to make them look more youthful that are non-surgical. And, and in the past, that, that wasn't always the case. The mm -hmm. technology has definitely gotten better in the past few decades versus you know, in the more distant past. Mm -hmm. So we use, we use lasers. I like the Halo, uh, the Cyton Halo laser. Actually, the one I use on myself and my wife. Uh, that thing absolutely works, works very nicely. Yeah. When, what age should you start using that at? Well, my, in 30s. I mean, it depends. Do you want to, if you want to prevent your face from ever starting to sag, I mean, and there are women that use it in their 30s. Uh, How much does like a, like the basic package? For, for like, you or for the average person? For like the average person. I mean, I'm asking questions because I'm like, yeah. I mean, so, if you're in your 30s and like you're good, thinking so about it. The Halo specifically, which is, <laughs> so the Halo is a very aggressive laser. It's not so aggressive like your whole face is going to fall off, but there is about five days of downtime. Um, and it does a really, really good job. And, uh, it runs about roughly a thousand for treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I do love it. Of all the machines in my office, the one I use on myself, I, I do like it. And, and so that really that, that type of machine, the other one I like is Morpheus, which is microneedling and radio frequency energy, Titan skin. Those machines were made for people like her. Mm -hmm. They're a little bit early in the game. Uh, it's not like their whole face is sagging off. And the reason that those procedures are nice is because you're going to get a result out of them. But if you if you try to use them when you're too far along, you'll be disappointed. And so I, I think that she's kind of a classic example of somebody that, that very likely could have gotten a very, very nice result from a non-surgical treatment. However, I wonder however, if she did get That's a great question of whether or not she's done like in the she past. And then she didn't like it. You know, that's a brilliant question. I don't know. Uh, that, that wasn't mentioned in any of the articles I read as she tried non-surgical things. I would yeah. love to know. That's Because I feel if I was a celebrity and I heard somebody say, oh, it's only $1,000 to do mm. lasers Whatever. and stuff, yeah. I'd be like, oh, let's, okay. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it works. You know, that's a great question. And if in the case that she had done that and she didn't get the results in she wanted, then it's a no-brainer. It's yeah. a no-brainer. Do the surgery. Um, so, yeah, if she had come into my office, I, I would have tried to push her down the road. And I do this all the time. I get a lot of facelift, necklift consults, and I'll say, look, you're a little early. Why don't you try this? See what kind of results you get. You might get a result that will last you five years. Mm -hmm. if, you get a, if you get a result that lasts you five years that you don't have to have major surgery, do it. That's no brainer. Mm -hmm. um, and, and why is that? Right? So I guess the question is, why am I trying to push people away from surgery? Well, for one, I always believe that you can get an equal result with non-surgical means. You should do that. You know, there are risks associated with surgery. It's not that there's no risk with these non-surgical treatments, but they're just less. Mm -hmm. um, and then secondly, 
if in the future you really, really need to have the surgery, it's much harder to do. I've done redo facelifts and I, I don't like doing them. Like the tissues are scarred up, the dissection sucks. I mean, it is a little bit more, I don't say stressful, but more tedious procedure. I mm -hmm. do think the, the risks yeah. do go up. And so when you do something that young at say 48, you know, in 20 years from now, when she's 68, which is, you know, nowadays not old, there's plenty of very, very active 68 year olds running around. I mean, it, she might need a surgery that then is going to be harder, you know, and if she could put it off a little bit, she might've avoided it. But, yeah. but you know, honestly, I, I do firmly believe that, you know, it's her body and her choice. I'm not going to dog her for, you know, there were people saying, you know, saying bad things about her that, why did you do this at this age? Well, I mean, it's not really your business. I mean, you know, uh, I think that if, I think when she saw a surgeon, she should have at the very least been offered some non-surgical treatments, but you know, looking at her at where she was, uh, with, with her face, if she had said, look, I understand that there's non-surgical things out there, but I really just want to do the surgery because I don't want to have to keep repeating this. I, I would have done it for her. Yeah. Um, I, I do worry when people come in and they want something and it's super subtle. Uh, I think that she had enough. I mean, you even saw it, you're like, yeah, okay. I can see what she's yeah. talking about. It wasn't like that you have to get a magnifying yeah. glass out to see exactly what it is. She's yeah, you, talking I mean, about. not that like, yeah. there's anything for her to be insecure about, but I could see her right. being you can see, on TV and right, people exactly like, why she's asking. Yeah. So, like, Oh, she's gotten older yeah. or something. So in general, on e -news or whatever. I mean, in general, the answer to the question, should you get a facelift in your forties? I think that the base answer should probably be no, um, for most people that if you're in your forties, there's a lot of great non-surgical ways to get the same result, yeah. but there are people out there, uh, that, that might not be the right answer for them. Mm -hmm. And if they want to pursue surgery and they find someone they, they trust, then I think that's okay. Yeah. I mean, people just age differently in yeah, general. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I'm going to, I like, if I don't wear makeup, I look like I'm, I don't know. How old do you think I'm 33. 33. I knew you were 30s. You look <laughs> I'll be great. 34 this year. You look great. <laughs> all right. Well, that's about all the things we have for this week. So good topics. Let me know what you think. Please leave us a comment and come back and watch us next week on Nip Talks.